right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Friday show, good vibes, good weather, no KU football game this weekend. So no loss that we're going to have to talk about on Monday. That's a positive. With Cole Butar, Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson here. We've got a guest-loaded show today. Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, joins us at 340. Uh, Josh Briscoe going to hop on with us at 415. Back on the mend is Josh. We'll talk Chiefs with him. And then uh, at 505, voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney comes on with us. Talk a little KU football, a little KU basketball. With Brian as well. Uh, Chiefs take on the Bills on Sunday in Sunday Night Football. And it's weird because the Bills to this point have looked like one of the best teams in the NFL. Certainly the AFC, especially since the early loss to the Steelers. I mean, they were just blowing teams out. And I get it. You're playing easier competition. But, you know, it's still hard for how many times have you seen the Chiefs, you know, only win by one possession or in the Eagles game only win by 12 over a bad opponent. So winning by 40 does give a statement for the Bills. Chiefs are two and a half point favorites in this game. I was surprised by that line. I, you know, not necessarily surprised that you don't want to give Patrick Mahomes points if you're Vegas. I thought it'd be closer to a pick I'm I'm very surprised. Maybe this is something, as you were pointing out before the show, maybe this is one of those games that Vegas knows something, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I that's all my, my immediate thought when I think, I mean, I like to think I know a bit about sports, and when I see a, a, a whether it be an over-under or a line that I think that doesn't make any sense. The the pick here is obvious. My thought is Vegas is going to count on a lot of people thinking that pick is obvious and make a lot of money as a result. Um, but I don't know. I, I can't imagine Josh Gordon made such a colossal difference. You know that. You know I I think most people expected by you know I, I think people expected him to be coming into this game now I don't think if they're playing any team besides the Bills I I highly or if they're you know not two and two about the you know the Chiefs if they're not two and two or if they're playing a worse team than Buffalo I, I don't know that they hurry the Josh Gordon thing so much um but the way Andy Reid was talking about him last week with how in shape he is I don't think most of us were shocked that he's on the active roster um but yeah I I was I was surprised, but my immediate go-to with that is Vegas must sense something that we don't, and I'm okay with that if that means the Chiefs have the advantage here. It was, what was it, three and a half, three, three and a half was the... I thought it opened at three, now it's down to two and a half. So if you go by, and I don't know how how reliable this old rule still is, but if the old rule is home field advantage gets you three points... So they're basically saying on a neutral site they're pick them, but again, I don't know how. Um, maybe they're I don't know. Maybe they're counting on the Chiefs really buckling down and focusing because they're two and two. 
Well, one thing the Chiefs might not have in the game, I mean, Frank Clark continues to be questionable. Uh, Chris Jones was not a participant in practice today. So the defense already not so hot for the Chiefs, and then it might only get worse from there, which I don't know how you didn't force any punts last week. So I guess the alternative is not only do you not force any punts, you don't allow any field goals either. It's all touchdowns. I'm terrified of Buffalo, to be frank with you. Um, I think there's just a handful of elite defenses in the NFL who shouldn't be terrified of Buffalo, and we are extremely far from an elite defense. Uh, and, you know, down Chris Jones, which I didn't actually know this until you just said it, down Chris Jones, uh, that's awful. I have no idea how we get uh, pressure onto Josh Allen. I have no idea how we stop uh, Stephon Diggs. I have n- I mean, we just have to put Mahomes out there possession after possession and force him to score and say, you know, just we have to score, I don't know, um, 90% of our possessions, 80% of our possessions probably is what my actual prediction would be and still win that game. I mean, it it might be all 100%. Like last week, you didn't punt. They might have to do that again against the Bills this week, which is a lot of pressure for the offense. Uh, one of the things, can the defense finally start forcing turnovers? You're not doing that even right now, which makes sense. You have to be close in coverage to force a interception or to bat up a pass to get an interception, or you have to be around the quarterback, forcing quarterback hits and, and chaos to be able to force strip sacks. Like It doesn't just come organically where it's it's all luck. Like You have to be influencing it, it somehow. I'll say this, though. What happens if Chris Jones does not play in this game, Frank Clark does not play in this game, and the Chiefs have actually have their best defensive performance of the year I don't know that it would mean much I mean I think they're still a better defense with Christian I don't think I'm I'm low on Frank Clark um I don't think he's lived up to really anything of the contract and the draft picks they gave up for him save the the great performance in the playoff run and really the probably the last six weeks of the of the season in the in that what 2019 season and look he deserves credit for that I'm you know Frank Clark I don't think brings a huge difference um I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think there's a chance they could have not a good game because Buffalo's so good, although I do think it is about their time. Interceptions are one thing. I think it's it's about their time for a fumble to bounce their way. Wasn't it two or three balls on the ground that the Eagles were able to recover? Um, again, when, when the Chiefs played Philadelphia, or am I thinking of a different game? I can't remember any off the top of my head. I know they recovered a fumble against uh, the Browns. Yeah, but I anyway, yeah. and, and look, turnovers – Historically, turnovers, especially fumbles, are a 50-50 proposition. Maybe like 55-45 in favor of the defense because they're always looking for the ball. But um, back to uh, the topic at hand, I, I just I with Chris Jones and Frank Clark, I, I think, I don't know, Josh Allen is really good, and I think good quarterbacks, for whatever reason, tend to thrive with pressure in their face. Um Tom Brady, of course, his big weakness is clearly shown to be pressure up the middle. But I think Josh Allen has more escapability than that. So I just don't know how much of a difference in this game in particular they're going to make. Well, the Bills' one low offensive game was against the Steelers, who we look at as having one of the better defenses in the NFL. And they don't, or they didn't in that game. Typically, they tend to do a lot of zone blitzes. They didn't blitz much in that game. They were able to get to the quarterback with Melvin Ingram and T.J. Watt. 
Chiefs don't really have that opportunity. So if you're missing Frank Clark and Chris Jones, those are your one opportunity for being able to do that without blitzing a ton. But even then, that from what we've seen over the last year and a half in the regular season, hasn't even been a, an easy proposition for them to do. Um, I, I'm i just having a, a hard time seeing how the Chiefs win this game. I, I think the over is the easiest bet in the world because I don't see any way the Bills score less than 30 points. And the Chiefs offense is going to have to score 30 points. It feels like to me this is going to be the game. You know, it's easy to, after the Chargers game, you lose two straight and think that that's going to be the game that, you know, that's maybe your back to the wall moment. I think it could be after this game, and especially if you lose this game. I mean, uh, I said this yesterday. You can kiss the bye week goodbye. You're, you're not getting the one seed if you lose this game. At that point, you'd be two and three. Best case scenario, even if you w- lose just one game the rest of the way, you'd be 13 and four, and you would lose the head to head against the Chargers and the Bills at that point. Or I guess you could get back the Chargers. But, um, there's a lot riding on this game, and I think more than anything, there's a lot riding on this game from a confidence in the defense perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I'm definitely with you on the losing the bye week thing if we lose on Sunday. The rest of the schedule isn't a cake schedule either, right? You know, we do have to play the Chargers again. We have to play the Broncos. Uh, I, I think some people after last week are lower on the Broncos. I'm still actually pretty high on the Broncos uh, as being a, a legit team. So this is not an easy uh, situation where if we do lose, we can just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll win out. We might, we might not win out. It's actually very likely we don't win out if we lose on Sunday, especially if losing on Sunday is indicative of the rest of the year's defense. And, you know, there's always, like, trades and stuff, I guess, but I feel like midseason trades in the NFL are not a uh, great proposition the majority of the time. Yeah, it's very rare to happen. Let me ask you this. Because the Bills do, at least they've shown to have a really good defense so far. They've played some meh competition, but, I mean, they've shut out, you know, what, two of them, I think. At least one of them. So, they've they've dominated their, their poor competition, except for the Steelers. What would happen? How do you feel if, the, the, another hypothetical, if the Chiefs come in, I mean, and they, if we come in Monday and the Chiefs have just won a game similar to that Rams game, on Monday Night Football, you know, if it's 49-48 or, you know, even both teams get in the 50s again, how you feeling? Because you, you've shown <laughs> you've shown an ability to score against what has shown to be a, a okay defense. Yeah. Or, you know, at least a, a decent defense. But you've, you've shown, I mean, I actually feel okay about that, and maybe that's just because I've accepted what I think this defense is. Yeah, that's what it is. I, I You feel good about it because you beat a really good team and you found a way to win. You still feel bad about the defense and you still feel like that could come back to haunt you, but overall, you'll take any win you can get when you're playing a team of this competition. He's Adam Dravetta with Cole Butar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Brandon McAnderson joins us in about 25 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. It's that time on a Friday to talk to Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, now a member of the Jayhawk Radio Network. No call tomorrow, the bye week for KU. Back at it next Saturday against Texas Tech. Uh, so, BMAC, how do you overcome as a player not kind of falling into, I don't know, maybe like a woe is me mentality or, or just kind of a bad mental view of the season and, and the process after suffering a loss like they did last Saturday against Iowa State? I think it's just part of it, and I think it's something that they're going to get used to or have gotten used to, and I think it's just going to be part of their experience. What's weird is that, you know, when you're down on the field and you're with the team, 
you have one experience. You know, when you're watching on TV, you have another experience. When you're watching from the stands, you have another experience. I'm going to tell you that that game was not as bad as Baylor. Like, they just physically and mentally, I thought, against Baylor were just beat down in a way that didn't really happen against Iowa State. Like, that was a that was as positive as I have ever seen the group uh, going into a second half where the game was, you know, for all intents and purposes, was over. Uh, but I thought that their their mental, they were sharp coming out, they were motivated, and they came out and, you know, forced a three and out, got a touchdown drive, and did some nice things. So it kind of left me more optimistic over that outcome than I was in the Baylor outcome. And to be honest, like Iowa State's just straight up loaded. So, you know, it's a team that you know, has lost a couple games, but it's not because of, you know, the, what they do on defense, which is they give up nothing. And then offensively, they're experienced and talented everywhere. They lost to Baylor because they gave up a kick return, and they lost to Iowa because they threw a lot of interceptions. So, I mean, they're a talented, talented team, maybe the best talent you'll see all week. When you guys lost a, a game by a big margin when you were with Mark Mangino, what was it like uh, bouncing back after that? Was it hard to kind of stay committed to that tough process? I mean, what was practice like? Hard. <laughs> Harder than it was the time before. And I think the expectation was for our people and for our coaching staff is that this this kind of stuff is hard. Like, you know, this happened, but this isn't going to keep happening. And if you want to make sure that doesn't keep happening, you better get your butt back in here and ready to work. So there was kind of just a mentality of this is just part of the process. I mean, like, we never ran from it. You know, we knew that uh, we were kind of always being treated and seen as a joke and always being treated and seen as overlooked. And we never shied away from it. We talked about it all the time. So when we got blown out or we didn't play well in a game, it was back to what we'd been doing. You know, when we won, there wasn't some celebratory period where it was like, yes, we won a game. It was like, we were supposed to win games. Let's get back to it. So there was always just this grinder mentality, and that was just part of Mangino's persona, and that was just the, the persona that he pushed on the team, and it worked. Did that rub anybody the wrong way, though, when you would lose a big game and it was like, man, I'm getting coached this hard and now we're losing by that? Like, forget this. Well, it depends on what your ex- what your uh, definition of rub the wrong way is because everything about the program rubbed people the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they talked to you in a way that rubbed you the wrong way. The workouts were in a way that rubbed you the wrong way. The, the experience itself could rub you the wrong way a lot. But like I said, that was kind of just the way it was. You know, if you wanted to be here, we were going to get out of this. Like this, you know, there was, you know, it's not that different in terms of like where where we started versus where we ended. But where we started, it was basically the, the understanding was we want to win here and we're not going to accept anything less than that. So if you don't want to be a part of this, then move on. You know, we didn't have the transfer portal back then, but it was encouraged that this might not be for you. Like this is going to be very hard. And uh, it definitely rubbed people the wrong way. It was definitely difficult to commit to things when some of your concepts weren't working. Uh, but but we knew that we didn't want to be that anymore. And if and this if this was the way to do it, if Coach told us that we could get through it this way, we were going to commit to it and we were going to believe in it, and we did. So that buy-in came along, and how much did when you finally started seeing some competitive games when you started having more success, how much did that kind of impact things into fully buying in? 
Well, it just increases the buy-in. I think from an individual standpoint, I think that's why this group is so bought in for Coach Leipold. I think it's because of the physical part. The first buy-in you have is physical because you're you're going to get stronger and faster, and you're going to be able to do things that you had not been able to do before. So I think they're all experiencing some of that now just because of all the, the strides that they made in the offseason, this first offseason with Matt Gildersleeve. So I think that's the first realization. The second is production. And I think that's where you're starting to see guys like Devin Neal, uh, guys like Tory Lachlan, their chests are starting to get bigger. They're starting to grow in confidence because these guys haven't had these type of experiences before, and now they're starting to have them. And I don't think we can overlook that because if you look at it against Iowa State, Iowa State's a team that was giving up two, two yards of carry, and we moved the ball to them, on them at will running the football. So this is not a team. We saw how good Baylor's offensive line and running backs are. Abram Smith had 20 – had. 23 yards on eight carries. Tristan Ebner had nine carries for 31 yards. So these, these those are two good backs and a great offensive line. They could not move the ball on the ground against Iowa State. Devin Neal would have went over 100 if he would have stayed in the game, you know, late into the fourth quarter. But he he was productive from the beginning of the game to the end, regardless of what the score was. So I think there were some things there that they did. That's the second part of that uh, buy-in is individual production. You've seen it with Jason Bean with the 300-yard game. Devin Neal had the 100-yard game. Answer that with an 83-yard game. When you're seeing running backs get production, that's offensive line production. So the offensive line gets that buy-in, too, that, hey, we just ran the ball against a team that isn't giving up anything. And uh, we were able to move the ball successfully. So I think production is the second part of it. You know, winning is the final piece. And that's just a matter of, you know, you, you improving physically and having that buy-in. And then second, your production matches how you feel and what you see on the field, and third is getting over that hump and getting into some games late and having some competitive possessions where the other team has a lot of pressure on them. We haven't had many of those situations. I'd say maybe two drives, whole game against South Dakota, and then maybe two drives against Duke early in the second half where they were feeling game pressure. So we need to create more of those circumstances so those guys can get more comfortable knowing they can execute in those moments. You know, it's funny you bring up the rushing game. And I think the Duke was the Duke game was probably the most impressive in terms of being able to establish the run and the offensive line going with uh, the wide zone scheme and everything. But I almost feel like the Iowa State game, despite you only putting up seven points, despite you only having, I mean, it was right around four yards per carry, which isn't a bad mark, but it's not like a great mark either. I almost feel like that was the second most impressive game considering where you had been in other games and also considering the competition. Iowa State is giving up just 2.8 yards per carry this year. They held Iowa, who's a top-five team who leans on their ground game offensively, to under 70 yards rushing and under two yards per carry. Uh, Am I right to think that there was a lot of progression from the running game overall between the offensive line and the running backs in that game? Absolutely. There's stats you can go even deeper on. You know, his 83 yards was the most yards they had given up, minimum 10 carries, since last year when they played – uh, Chuba Hubbard in uh, mid-October. So it had been a year before someone had got 80 yards. And it wasn't all close games. They had blowouts in that period of time. No one's been able to run the football on them. And that was something that Kansas was able to do consistently. You saw there was a, a series where Devin Neal had back-to-back first down runs, a 12-yard run followed by a 10-yard run. Uh, you saw you know early first half, Tory Lachlan being able to flash in for a touchdown. I think that's big time, and I think it's big time not just because, you know, you say four yards of carry, well, you know, what's the big deal? But it's the opponent. You looked at last year, you know, an Iowa State game that 
you know, Kansas was in, you know, towards the end of the third quarter before it got broken open, I think they had like 39 rush yards in that game. So it's, this is just not a team that gives up stuff on the ground. This was a team that was motivated coming off of a loss, a team that is deep and talented. You know, their linebackers average 245 pounds. You know, so this is a big physical group. Uh, they've got nine preseason all Big 12 people on their team. You know, this is a deep, deep, talented team. And there's some kind of optimism. I don't know what it was just leaving that too. There was something about that experience that uh, felt attainable. You know, watching what Iowa State has become under the circumstances that they have become it, and then watching Kansas come in, you know, with this coaching staff, with this team that has not been together very long, not gotten to know each other very well, to put up an effort where there was moments where they were very competitive. And there was a lot of self-inflicted wounds. But they were very competitive, and, and everything felt attainable. There was a weird optimism um, leaving that place, and I think they've been able to carry that into practice this week. With Devin Neal specifically in that running game, is there anything from you know just a detailed look of it that you've seen improvement of him from where he was at the beginning of the season to what he looks like now running the ball? So one, he looks stronger and faster, which that's weird. You'd be like, why would a running back look stronger and faster midway through the season versus opening season? That just means he's seeing it better. So now he's just able to apply his skill set in a cleaner way where he's more confident that he can explode early on. So that's the first thing I noticed was that he was moving the pile on every carry with a lot of explosion. The second part I liked was that he wasn't looking to hit a home run every time. And sometimes his singles were, were nearly home runs just because his understanding of let me take what I can get now. And even in that wide zone, there was a play that I highlighted, which I thought was his best run of the season so far, even beyond the big run. Uh, he got a 12-yard run against Iowa State. There was two leverage guys on the outside. It was outside zone. He could have bounced right into those unblocked players because he's done that a lot. And that's what happens when you're a new player and you're 18. Now, he's, he's young for college freshmen. He's just not young for uh, people in his, in his career. He just turned 18 this year, so he's a young person. And I think now he's starting to get the understanding of that. Those guys are leveraged. It may look like there's more space there, but these are good college football players. They can close that gap in a moment. So instead of taking that what appears to be that, that fool's goal, taking that open space and maybe getting six yards, I'm going to stick my head into where the play is supposed to go, and I'm going to make the angles more difficult on the defenders. Because you're making the angle more difficult, and then when they get there, they got to tackle a 220-pound man. So it's not easy, and I think he's starting to understand I'm the prize, and I need to be more efficient inside these tackles and kind of use my speed and power to manipulate them. And I think that's that's the next step he's taking, and he's taken it in a short amount of time. This was his second career start. So his progress from week one to week four has been magnificent. I just look forward to, like, what are the possible – I mean, you can't even imagine a ceiling for a guy that's improved as much as he has this early in his career. This week, the bye week for KU ahead of the Texas Tech game. How beneficial do you think the bye week is for KU? Very beneficial. It's almost like a, it's almost like midterms. Because you think about it, you go into the season, you know, kind of just assuming, well, you know, this is a, this guy's been the best in film, and in this short period of time, he's the guy that I trust the most. But maybe they've been asking that person to do something schematically that they're not good at. But they don't have a choice, you know, because you can sit on the sideline and say, wow, these same X amount of guys are still playing. What about the other guys? Well, that's the unknown part, and that's what you don't have when you don't have full off-season because you don't know about every person in every position. So it's not a matter of – because I'm, I'm sure in these four games they learn more about the team than they had in those camps. 
periods is <laughs> you always learn more about playing in different competitions and different teams and, you know, playing on the road. So I think they learned they have this huge information source. So now they can either capitalize on people's strengths or maybe protect people's weaknesses or maybe try other people if there's spots where they know things aren't going well, maybe they can try someone else. So I think it's kind of like gives them the ability to play towards their strengths in a way that they just wouldn't have known prior to the season. So I think it's a group that is adaptable, that coaching staff, and I think they've been adaptable early in the season, and I think this will really help them to get a week to pause to think about how can we put people in the position to do the thing that they do best as opposed to putting them in a position that fits our system. They're willing to alter their system, and I think they know more now. I'm curious, uh, typically with the bye week, is it more about self-evaluation or is the bye week typically just an extra week of prep for the next opponent? Where they are, when we were where they are, it was a hard practice. It was almost like spring practice. We went we went a lot of good on good, and I think, you know, you'd probably split it. So let's say they have, you know, practice Monday through Thursday and they want to give them some extra days off. We'd probably go three days where it was just like spring practice. So we're working on fundamentals, you know, extended individual periods. And then when we went to team periods, we weren't going against scouting. We were going good on good and focusing on doing what we do better and getting the best competition against each other. And then that last day of that bye week, we'd usually start our – we'd get that extra day of prep uh, where we'd start on some opponent stuff. But it wouldn't surprise me if they even skipped that day and just really focused on, you know, getting good on good, getting the best reps possible, getting the best skill instruction possible because that's that's what they need. They need more practice time. They need more time, you know, to put their best versus their best and see what they got. Talking with Brandon McAnderson here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, former Jayhawk Orange Bowl winning running back, member of the Jayhawk Radio Network. All right, B-Mac, you ready for uh, another round of game picks? Let's do it. All right, you uh, are 18-17 and 17 overall, so sticking above 500. That's always the goal, 13-12 and 12 in college football so far this season. Um, actually, you're 23-22, and 22, excuse me, because 10-10 and 10 in the NFL as well. All right, so uh, first up, BMAC, in the college realm, number six, Oklahoma, is minus three, taking on number 21, Texas, in the, I don't even know, Red River rivalry shootout. I don't remember what it's called anymore. Yeah, I think I'll take OU. Okay, uh, number 13, Arkansas, at number 17, Ole Miss, the Fighting Lane Kiffins are giving up five and a half. Now, I didn't see either one of those games. So I'm going to go with Ole Miss just because I like the color of their helmet. Number two, Georgia is giving up 15 and a half points. They're at number 18, Auburn. I've watched Auburn a couple times. They don't seem like they're an upper echelon team, so I'm going to go with Georgia. Top five showdown, number five or number four Penn State is at number three, Iowa. The Hawkeyes are giving up one and a half. Iowa's been so lucky. You figure their luck's got to run out at some point, so I'm going to go with Penn State. Number 14, Notre Dame, is on the road against Virginia Tech. It's a pick 'em. I'm going to go with Notre Dame for no reason at all. All right, on to the NFL. You are 10 and 10, 2 and 3 last week. First up, Green Bay minus 3 at a 3 and 1 Cincinnati Bengals team. I like the Packers. I think they're getting their rhythm. Chicago is playing at your Raiders. Las Vegas has given up five and a half against Justin Fields. I like the Raiders. Cleveland is playing at L.A. The Chargers are giving up two points. 
I like Cleveland. Is this uh, being held against the Chargers, Joey Bosa's comments on Derek Carr? No, I'm glad he said it because there's some moments where Derek Carr, I mean, and I had this conversation many times with non-Raider fans. Derek Carr is so frustrating because he's so talented, not because he's not talented, but he just doesn't use his athleticism very much. My thing with the Chargers is is this: it, everything is like this celebration of the Chargers. When they took it took four turnovers for them to beat the Chiefs by six points. Four turnovers. <laughs> I think we're a little early to the party on the Chargers. They they play well against the Raiders, but that was a game the Raiders had some opportunities to get back in as well. I'm not sold on this team as some perennial contender. Um, and I think the Browns have just a crazy good defense line. San Francisco is at Arizona. The Cardinals may be the best team in the NFL right now. Question mark. They're giving up five points. I like Arizona. That Kyler's crazy. Their games are fun. And last up, the Sunday night football game. Buffalo is in Kansas City in a AFC championship rematch. The Chiefs are giving up two and a half points. Chiefs have just been, in these games where they want to send a message, they've been dangerous. I think this will be one of them. So I think the Chiefs will cover. Is there any way this game doesn't go over? It's 56 and a half with the way the Bills offense has been playing, the Chiefs offense has been playing, and as bad as the Chiefs defense is. Yeah, I think the Chiefs, are our defense is going to be a little bit better at home because they'll have the crowd noise and whatnot. And they weren't bad against the Chargers for most of the game. They had the bad moments. They weren't bad for most of the game. I think the defense will be good enough for them to win and, and to get that game. But the over, definitely. Dang the over. All right, he's Brandon McAnderson, former K Orange Bowl winning running back, member of the Jayhawk Radio Network. BMAC, thank you so much for the time, and have a good weekend. All right, man, you too, yeah. All right, that was Brandon McAnderson. Joins us every Friday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWNs, RCST. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go. Chiefs play the Bills this Sunday on Sunday Night Football in a rematch of the AFC Championship game. Josh Briscoe joins us now on the show of Arrowhead Report on SI Now, Times Hours on The Athletic, and almost entirely sports on 810. Uh, first things first, Josh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago with everything that, that was going on for you. We uh, know that you've been coming on the show every now and then and, and uh, put a message out there for people to say a prayer for you. So I'm glad you're back now. And uh, how's everything doing? How are you uh, doing in your, in your recovery process? I'm doing good, man. It's good to be back. Yeah, I actually had a friend of mine text me, a, a college friend, who said that he heard, he, he found out, um, uh, he said on an update on a show in Lawrence. I was like, oh, Darren must have mentioned that's that's my system. Uh, but yeah, so it's you know the, the quickest possible version is that I was in the hospital for I think it ended up being like four five days four nights. Um, I went in with a blood sugar over nine hundred. Um, right now, I can look at my Apple Watch because technology is unbelievable, and I can see that my blood sugar right now is 101 as I'm speaking to you. And that's a great place for a blood sugar to be. <laughs> 928 is a really bad place for it to be. Um, and so I, I didn't know that I was diabetic, but I've got type 1. I've been um, able to manage that in these last couple of weeks and, and being back home and everything with a ton of help from my mom, who's had type 1 for my whole life. and. From uh, from Renee, our girlfriend Renee, as she is typically known on on almost entirely sports, um, and so the the two of them, and then all of the the crew out at uh, Truman Medical Center, which is now University Health Lakewood, they just changed their name, and I figured at least I could do is get their branding right. Um, 
with the help from from everybody out there and and from the people around me and everything, I'm I'm doing a whole lot better now. And uh, if anybody else listening now, you know, reached out over either the time that I was not either awake at all because I was out for a while, or if it was a time I don't remember, or if it just ended up being in the swarm of responses I got. Thank you very much uh, to you guys for for spreading the message along, and thank you to everybody. Who, uh, who reached out or who even just was, was thinking of me and my family and everything throughout all that. Cause I got to basically not remember any of the really scary parts, uh, but, but they, they had to. So um, yeah, all things considered, I feel very fortunate that it wasn't anything worse. And uh, you know, now I'm just sort of my, my new plan is to get as much of this diabetic stuff sort of automated so I can become kind of a great value Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, hey, if that's the trade-off, then that works out. You just need one of those, like, I don't even know what the, the heart thing, the circle. The arc reactor. There we go, the arc reactor. The arc reactor for my pancreas. Basically. Oh, that'd be which perfect. I kinda, which I kind of have. Like, I've got, some, I've got a, a good little pod that helps me check my blood sugar constantly, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll get to an insulin pump eventually, and, yeah, I, and if I can get rockets in my feet or whatever, at that point, I'm, I'm already part cyborg. I might as well sign up for the whole deal. Hey, Iron Man is dead. There is a hole for Iron Pancreas to... Whoa, spoiler alert. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to be catching up on movies when, when you're laying in bed for this. So who is yeah. more back now? Are you more back? Is it Josh Ooh. Gordon or Willie Gay? Who is the most back? Well, so Willie Gay working his way back, and he had a, a tweet a little bit ago about him having some mental health sort of stuff going on right now in addition to him coming back from his foot, so... I don't know where he's going to end up. Josh Gordon is kind of fun. I mean, the Chiefs offense obviously hasn't been the issue, um, but but I've been really, really excited to see him make his debut on Sunday night, even if it's for five plays and he only gets targeted in one or two of them or whatever. That's very exciting. I feel the most back because I know I'm here, <laughs> and I don't know when we're going to see Willie Gay back out there again for those variety of reasons. I don't know what we're going to see from Josh Gordon. I know that I feel pretty good, but I, I, I am very hopeful, obviously, that Willie Gay is able to figure out whatever's going on personally with him right now. And obviously the toe and just getting back fully healthy. And I'm, I'm very excited about Josh Gordon, but I, I do think that he ends up, um, you know, because he can't play safety, it, he ends up not being maybe the most important thing in the, the rest of the season. Yeah, so I guess what do you think both of those guys can provide whenever we do see, like, like you said, Josh Gordon, who knows how much he's actually going to play. Willie Gay, same thing, honestly, heading into the weekend. Um who do you think is going to have the bigger impact the rest of the season, though? Yeah, so, I mean, season long, I would still very much hope that it's really gay. Again, you know, so they activated him uh, earlier this week, and, and then you have a 21-day window uh, to, to get him. Maybe, I'm sorry, they didn't activate him. They, they opened up his practice window. Because you have a 21-day window to fully activate him off the IR. And he didn't practice today for personal reasons. And then again, he has the tweet saying like, it's something along the lines of, I love you all, but my mental health is effed up right now, which is again, like I just, it's very hard to know what his whole season is going to look like. Taking the optimist's view and, and hoping that he's able to, to figure that out shortly. I, I do think it would be him uh, assuming that he is back out on the field at some point. He's had injury issues, obviously. So uh, I don't, I don't know if there's a, you know, a concern that does he come back and, and how, how nagging is that toe injury? Cause it certainly can uh, nag on throughout the season, but he's at a point where, I mean, I think in large, in large part, I think a lot of people are looking at him as a potential 
sort of savior for some of the places where this defense is at its worst right now. And that's a lot of pressure for a second-year linebacker who was not a particular savior last year. He came along slowly. Spags likes to do that with rookies when he can. Nick Bolton's played more this year because just simply out of necessity. They don't have other guys. So that one's complicated. For Josh Gordon, I don't think it's as complicated, but I also think there's a little bit more of a cap on, on how impactful he can be. The Chiefs having a third pass-catching option behind Hill and Kelsey is when they've always been at their best. Healthy Sammy Watkins on this offense has produced the best version of this offense. And this offense has been really good this year, aside from those turnovers. But having a, a big physical receiver who can win at the point of the catch, who can use his body, who still has a little bit of burst, who has been good also in his post-Cleveland stops, I actually, I'm, like, I'm kind of buying the hype a little bit that, that he will have a role in this offense. Um, I just, you know, he's not going to replace Tyree Kill or Travis Kelsey if they end up missing a couple of games or something. But he can be a third option where, where again, that's, where the, that's something this offense has needed. And they know that. They were in on Juju Smith-Schuster this offseason. It, it seemed like there was interest among receivers. They drafted Cornell Powell to do some of these things, and he didn't even end up making the active roster. So uh, the Chiefs knew that they needed to add somebody, and, and I think Josh Gordon, as a low-risk and medium-reward piece, makes a lot of sense. Maybe it was going to go this way anyway. I mean, it probably was, but do you think this is probably the final nail in the coffin for a guy like McCole Hardman in terms of being re-upped by the Chiefs when his contract expires? That's interesting. I, I don't know that... that it is a nail in the coffin. I do think it is a really strong indicator of how they feel about him in conjunction with, I think, I don't want to get this stat wrong, and I, I'm pulling this from somebody on Twitter, so apologies for not having it in front of me or, or even being able to credit the right person. But there, there was a stat about how many receivers have caught passes beyond the, the line of scrimmage since, I think, like, it was like the Eagles game and the second half, week three against the Chargers or something like that. And it like Demarcus Robinson had like one, and then Tyreek Hill had a bunch. McCole Hardman has been used in this offense behind the line of scrimmage, at the line of scrimmage, at running jet sweeps, taking handoffs, taking screens. And he's valuable in that role. And, and I could see the Chiefs even being willing to pay him a little bit to keep a guy like that in the fray they do not view him as a number two receiver. And that's not because, like, somebody told me that. That's because I've been watching how they've been using him and, and the fact that they do go out and they get a Josh Gordon. They were in on Juju Smith-Schuster. So I think, I, I think that the verdict is probably pretty close to in on Hardman. Uh, I don't necessarily think it determines if he'll be a chief in the future or not because, again, I think they could absolutely use him in that way. My guess, though, is that he probably hits free agency and the Dolphins or somebody, the Jags, some Florida team, I guess, see him and they go, you know what, I think we could make him Tyreek Hill light and ignore the fact that the Chiefs were not able to do that. Yeah, I kind of view him the same way as, as like DeAnthony Thomas, where he's just kind of a gadget player yeah. for you. He can take advantage of schematic plays that you put up for him, but I think the big difference there is that you know, you used only a, what, fifth or sixth round pick on D'Anthony Thomas, and he was making, like, the minimum when you had him on your team, whereas McCole Hardman, if you're re-upping him, I don't, I don't know, maybe he would only need the minimum at that point, but you used a second round pick on him. Outside of that, I feel like it's pretty similar with what they have been. 
Yeah, I think that Hardman is is sort of the third Pokemon evolution of Dexter McCluster, D'Anthony Thomas, and, and him. <laughs> you know, like he's he's uh, Charizard three. Because it, it, it's not even a bad thing. Again, there's value to that. He's faster and quicker and more elusive, and to be fair, a better wide receiver than any of those three guys. Those other two guys are of those three. He is clearly the best. I think it pretty much maybe everything, maybe not returning kicks. I guess I don't know. Um, so there's again. It's nice to be the Charizard of that group, but in reality, it's he, it's not quite Charizard because Charizard is you know Tyreek Hill. Wait, maybe Tyreek Hill is the maybe Tyreek Hill is the next evolution there, and we're going we're going four deep on that one. I don't know. Okay, wait, who are we going? Is who's in the middle? Is it Dexter McCluster? Or who's is it Anthony I Thomas? I think I think Anthony Thomas is the second evolution for me. That I think. I don't know. I, I really I had a, a ton of Dexter McCluster hype back in the day, but I feel like it just I feel like he was a little more of a running back trying to do the uh, offensive weapon thing when he was at the position. I think I think he said that that he was an, an OW was his official position for an offensive weapon. Uh, but I feel like he was a, a running back trying to do receiver stuff. I think the other guys are more receivers that are doing other uh, OW stuff. So I think I go. McCluster to Thomas to Hardman, and then Tyreek Hill is like if you well, I mean in Pokemon Go they've introduced Mega Evolution. You can Gigantamax in Pokemon Sword and Shield. Tyreek Hill is a Gigantamax version of of whatever evolution we're using there. This got very Pokemon heavy. <laughs> we, well, we figured it out, and that's the most important thing. We have it all roadmap now. <laughs> we're talking with Josh Briscoe here of Arrowhead Report, Times Ours, and almost entirely sports. Uh, back-to-back 100-yard rushing games for Clyde Edwards-Alaire. You go from averaging about three and a half yards per carry in the first two games to now about six and a half yards per carry over the last two. Do you think we're seeing a breakout from Tyreek Hill, and how much of that recent success do you think just stems from the motivation after the fumble versus the offensive line improving? I think you you touched on it there at the end. I think you look at where the where the, the entire look at the running game as a whole, right? So you you have to take the big picture of the running back, your offensive line, the scheme, the situations, even your quarterback to some extent. Which just you know putting the cards on the table is part of the reason that I I don't like drafting running backs highly. That I would not pay a running back a significant amount of money because it's just because they are one part of a much larger machine. Look at last year where they struggled. To, to run the ball effectively, where they struggled in short yardage, where they struggled uh, in how they used the running game in, in some ways even. And then tell me what changed. That's what I will give the most credit to for what we're looking at right now. And especially over these last couple of weeks, I think we've seen this offensive line and the scheme a little bit kind of play more to the offensive line's advantages. You have these road graders in that front, four, in that, that front five there where obviously every single position turned over, as we've talked about a million times this offseason. And there has been there was that, that one run that honestly should have been a touchdown for a faster straight line running back. No one's ever claimed that's Clyde Edwards-Hilaire's best trait. It's not. Um, a, a faster running back scores there on that one drive that, that had the, the hole in the offensive line that was literally big enough to drive a car through. Like, that's not even an exaggeration. It was a massive, massive hole and. And, and Clyde got tackled a little short, and then Patrick Mahomes, you know, did one of his weird short yardage touchdown things, and it worked out. But, I, I, I mean, I think Clyde has played well. I don't want to say that he has, and I don't think that's totally fair. Daniel Jeremiah 
tweeted out, I think it was during the Chargers game, it might have even been in the Eagles game, that the Chiefs need to invest in a, in a faster running back to take more advantages of, of the holes that the, the offensive line is building. That makes me crazy because that's not the right way to think about it in my mind. But uh, also they just did invest a lot in Clyde, obviously. But he, I think he's played pretty well. I think the biggest thing, though, is that this offensive line has absolutely been moving dudes. Uh, and you've even seen some of that success extend to Daryl Williams. They're, they're running different types of things in the offense. Daryl's the guy out there on third down still, which is a little bit disappointing because that was a place where Clyde was supposed to be able to shine. But I just don't think they trust him in pass pro at this point. Um, but, but having that interior offensive line, uh, having Tooney, Creed Humphrey, and, and Trey Smith, being those guys there, they, they just have been absolutely dominating. Honestly, I, not to, to minimize Tooney, but Humphrey and Smith especially. And whenever you have offensive linemen who are winning those battles and you have defenses who are terrified of Tyreek Hill and even Travis Kelsey, uh, and obviously Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball to those guys, all of a sudden you find these defenses like the Eagles playing too high safeties. And all of a sudden saying, yeah, I mean, go ahead and run it if you want. And if you get six yards per carry or whatever – Feel free to keep doing that. And that's what the Chiefs have been able to do. Yeah, and, and I want to be careful with this next question because I, I don't want to make this about like, oh, you have to be dominant at the run to be a good offense because that's not what I'm trying to go with this. Um, it's sure. obviously always going to be about Mahomes and the passing game first. But uh, if you just look back at Mahomes' seasons with Andy Reid in the offense, 2018 was the best offense statistically, and mm -hmm. that was a year where, yes, you were the best passing offense. And if you look at you know passing yards per attempt, uh, you were also that year sixth in rushing yards per attempt. Now, 2019 and 2020, both seasons, you were still one of the best offenses in the league, but you know, you're know you more of top five, top three offenses than 2018 when you were the number one offense. And those years, you were 12th in rushing yards per game and 20th in rushing yards per game, uh, but you were still a top three passing offense. So uh, do you think it's applicable at all? Because right now they are top five in rushing yards per attempt. But we know they're going to run the ball, so when you can do it, how efficient can you be at it? Is that applicable at all to how good of an offense this can be in terms of, you know, if you're not a good running team, it'll still be one of the best offenses with Patrick Mahomes, but if you are a good running team on top of that, now you are the best offense. I think to some extent, I think you're using uh, uh, probably the right metric in terms of going yards per attempt. You mentioned the efficiency. I think that's also the right word to be using there. So the, the thing with the running game that we've seen from, like, we used last week as a, as a great example. Also, the Eagles run defense stinks. But um, you, can, you can use last week as the example. Having a running game that can consistently take advantage of the defense daring you to run the ball makes you more efficient, makes you more effective, and makes you more multiple. And that is one place where I do think running the ball still has an absolute place in, in modern football. Because – if you are in a position where you cannot take advantage of light boxes, and that doesn't even always mean numbers. It can mean the personnel. If you're running out a ton of defensive backs and your, and your offensive line cannot get to the second level to create an opportunity for your running back to, to end up picking up six or seven yards, or maybe you have a situation where you've got six yards and your running back has one guy to beat to turn it into a 15-yard gain, or maybe, maybe a breakaway score. If you can't do that, 
against either numbers or personnel advantages that the defense is offering to you, then your, your offense is not as multidimensional as it should be. And so, again, whenever you talk about running backs individually, I think lots of stuff gets lost in, in those conversations because we're all used to drafting individual running backs in the fantasy. But when you talk about running games as an entire unit, there's absolutely a, a value to that. In terms of 2018 versus 19 versus 20 versus this year, it's tough because 2018, you know, you're talking about a defense that demands that you continue to be excellent at every turn and be the most aggressive you could possibly be, play some risk reward stuff and end up coming out on top. And we're seeing some of that this year as well, obviously, with how terrible the defense has looked to this extent. So I, I think that I would not want to draw a clear line of correlation between level of offensive competence and running game ranking or whatever. But I absolutely think that it's fair to say, hey, having a running game that can take advantage of, of the times that a defense would prefer that you run the ball in terms of like, hey, try to run the ball here. We're, we're, we're afraid of what you're going to do over the top. Whenever a defense is going to dare you to do that, you need to be able to take advantage of it. And I think they've shown a better, uh, a better capability of doing that, particularly with this offensive line this year. All right, we're talking to Josh Briscoe. You up for a little good idea, bad idea? Oh, God, I love this game. You know I love this game. <laughs> All right, first up, not freeing up the money and not trading for Stephon Gilmore. Good idea or bad idea? I think it was a good idea to not do it, if, that is, if I answered that correctly. Mm -hmm. They would have had to have made, I think, four void years that would have stretched out his salary cap hit for this season for five years total, and then you're carrying dead money for a player you're not keeping or maybe you're extending after the fact. The coverage has not been good, and, and I would have been very interested to see him back. I also think that having a, a healthy cornerback unit again this week is going to make that look a little bit better. Just getting Rashad Fenton back, which, again, like that's not a, a huge addition for most teams. I think that's going to make the, the unit look a little bit better. I would have invested differently in this cornerback position three years ago, though. And for a while, the Chiefs made me look stupid for saying that. I, right now, I'm feeling a little more justified. Okay, how about this is just kind of an extension of that good idea, bad idea, making a trade at some point this year for a good defensive player? I just don't know who it could be because of the lack of flexibility they have against the cap right now. It would have to be somebody probably still on a rookie contract, and, and teams aren't going to move away from an impact player on their rookie contract still, you know, unless something wild is happening. So I, I could see there being a good idea situation there somehow. I just don't know that the Chiefs are in a very good, a very good position to actually pull that off. Okay, we've been having this conversation on the show a lot this week about are you better off if you do make a trade, make it a trade for somebody in offense or defense where, you know, if you add somebody to defense, how much is it really helping? Or should you just try to become the most unstoppable unit you can on offense? So good idea, bad idea, making a trade at some point for another receiver or receiving weapon, i.e. like, a, I don't know, a Zach Ertz if you wanted a second tight end. I'm going to lean that idea for all the reasons I just had to lay out on the defensive side. I would rather see them try to do something for, let's say, a linebacker who's competent in coverage, a safety that maybe they would play if they're not going to play one Thornhill to get Dan Sorensen off the field a little bit more. But also the other issue with both sides of that, I don't see them adding a player midseason and them having a massive impact. Like, it's sort of one of my hesitations on Josh Gordon. It's just that, like, Andy Reid's offense is notoriously complex. So I think he's going to have a limited role at least for a while. And Steve Spagnuolo likes guys that know his scheme really well. And so, I mean, uh, Dan Sorensen's still playing. 
I don't. I just don't know who they who they bring in, who either side would really be able to bring in that would have much of an impact. Unfortunately. Okay, last one. Salvador Perez hitting the drum so hard on Sunday it splits. <laughs> Good idea. Why not? Sure. <laughs> There's probably something going on there culturally that I should say that that's a bad idea. But I feel like if he hits it hard enough that it splits, uh, it should count as one more home run. I think that's a great sign for the defense. If if that, I don't know yeah. why. I, just, it, it just <laughs> I, I agree. I, I don't know why, but I also agree with that 100%. All right, that's Josh Briscoe of Arrowhead Report on SI Now. Time's ours on The Athletic and almost entirely sports on 810. Josh, so happy that uh, you're back on the mend, and thanks for hopping on with me. I'm very happy to talk to you. Very happy to be here. Not as happy to watch the Bills put up 35 points on Sunday, but <laughs> I'll enjoy the game nonetheless. Yep, pound the over, 56.5, way too small. <laughs> Thanks again, so Josh. Low. Thank you. All right, that was Josh Briscoe of Almost Entirely Sports on 810, as well as Times Hours in the Athletic and Arrowhead Report on SI Now. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, game picks for the week. <laughs> FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson along with Cole Cedabutar and Adam Dravetta. We got high school football on the airwaves tonight. No KU game tomorrow, but Chiefs game on Sunday. Let's get into our game picks here. Uh, Adam, you were eight and two overall. You went eight and two in the first week of doing this. So congratulations to you. I'm twenty three and twelve. BMAC eighteen and seventeen, or actually, um, I forgot to edit that in between the break. I think he's twenty three and twenty two. And then Cole, you are nine and eleven. Under 500, woo! But not far enough away that you couldn't get it over this week. All right, first up, number six, Oklahoma, minus three points against number 21, Texas. Cole, you go first, then Adam, then I'll take it. Uh, rivalry games are tight, man. That's that's a that's a difficult one. I think I'm going to lead towards Oklahoma there, um, but it's it's never an easy it's never an easy win. The uh, Red River Showdown. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I do like Oklahoma. Uh, on that line okay and uh as far as i go um and this uh i totally know what the line is in this game this has nothing to do with the fact that i was dealing with something on the computer <laughs> minus three but, for but Derek, just to make sure you know what the line is what <laughs> can you tell me what it is minus three oklahoma neutral site um yeah i i, I kind of a goal agree with everything cole just said about the rivalry you know I guess I'll lean. I'll give a slight lean to Oklahoma um, because I do think they're just better, and I, I kind of will go better coach, and especially in college. Usually in the NFL, I say better quarterback, better coach. Give me that. Um, but right now, I'll definitively say better coach. The ad edge goes to uh, the Sooners. So, yeah, give me the Sooners and a lean. I'm going to actually go Texas in this one. I like the way they're playing right now. Bajan Robinson's up to second in the Heisman voting for Texas. Um, they've been really good since the Arkansas lost. Oklahoma has been playing with fire. Close games for Oklahoma, so I'm going to go with uh, the Longhorns in the upset here. Number 13, Arkansas at number 17, Ole Miss. Um, I think Ole Miss is a little bit underrated as a, like a, for number 17. I think they could be uh, a borderline top 10 team realistically. Arkansas maybe a little bit overrated. I think that's actually kind of the reverse of what I said the last time we talked about Arkansas when I was a little bit higher on them and I thought that they were actually underrated at that point. Uh, but I do think I'm going to go Ole Miss here. I think uh, this is a really interesting one, not just for this weekend, but in the long term. 
uh, because Sam Pittman and uh, Lane Kiffin were hired. If it wasn't in the same offseason, it was one offseason apart. And Arkansas, I think there was a lot of talk that they wanted uh, the current Missouri coach, Eli Drinkwitz, and they wound up with Pittman. And between Mississippi State, who I think all that offseason, it was Leach, Kiffin, Drinkwitz and Pittman were all hired in the same offseason. So far, in the early returns, Pittman has that edge. Uh, where'd you say this game was, Derek? Ole Miss. The Grove. Then, then, yeah, then give me uh, give me the Rebels. All right, we're all going Ole Miss. I got Ole Miss as well. Uh, I just like their offense a lot better that they're going to be able to pull away more. Number two, Georgia is giving up 15 and a half. They're at number 18, Auburn. Dang. I was, I was like... I was super wrong on Georgia. I'll, I'll give Adam a ton of credit here. Last week, I was low on Georgia, and uh, they showed out, and you were 100% right last week about how high you were on Georgia, but that's a big 15 and a half. This, is, this isn't like a PUD squad. This is another, this is another ranked team, a, a pretty good one in my opinion. Um I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna go Georgia though. They, 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 their performance last week was incredible. So I'm definitely gonna go Georgia here. Uh I'll make it short and sweet. I'm gonna take Georgia until they give me a reason not to. Same. We're all going Georgia as well as Ole Miss. Not a lot of separation here. All right. I think there might be a little more separation on this one. Number four, Penn State at number three, Iowa. The Hawkeyes are giving up a point and a half. Dang. Um, I really like Penn State there. Um, Iowa, I was definitely a good team. Are they the third best team in the country right now? I, I don't know about that. Um, so I think I think Penn State, uh, and, and where is, is this in Iowa? Yeah. Hmm. But I still like Penn State, I think. I'll go, oh, man. I guess I'll go Iowa just based on home field advantage. But what gets me is there, Kirk Ferentz, with the exception of I can't remember the exact year, but early on in his tenure at Iowa, uh, he they only lost one game. They finished number three in the country. They won a, a BCS Bowl when it was back when it was called the BCS. But except for that, he's always kind of good for a year where he only wins ten, but never quite jumps up into that super high echelon. I'll certainly change my perception of him if they win, but I. I this is tough. I, I will lean Iowa. Though. They did have that year a couple years ago where they went 12-0, and 0, and then they lost they the lost Big Ten the big, title yeah. really close, and then they just got murdered in the Rose Bowl against Christian McCaffrey and Stanford. Um, I'm going with Penn State. I just think Iowa has benefited from some turnover luck. They've gotten a ton of turnovers. The offense hasn't been like that good so far. I think Penn State can handle them on the road. Last one for college football, number 14, Notre Dame at Virginia Tech, who's unranked, but it's a pick em. Really? That's shocking to me. Um, I don't like Notre Dame a ton, but the odds are making me draw a big question mark as to like why they would be so unfavored against an unranked team that has been playing fine, right? They, they, they haven't uh, – the, the, there's a pretty good reason they're not top 25, right? Oh, that's so weird. Um you know, as uh, Vegas might know something, right? That that that's sort of the the line here when you see something that doesn't quite make sense. So I think I'm going Virginia Tech. After a, a disappointing result last week, I think Brian Kelly is a good enough coach that he can get his team back focused. And especially with it being a pick'em again, I I agree with what Cole said. This is a situation where you go, well, it should be obvious. So what don't I know? Um, but I'll still, in spite of that, I I just think. 
I really think Brian Kelly is uh, is a good enough coach to get his team refocused. I think they're good enough players to have some pride after getting worked by Cincinnati. So give me give me the Irish. I'm going Notre Dame as well, but I'm very scared by this line. Uh, does Vegas know something very possible? Or could it be just that Vegas is lower on Notre Dame this year, right? They were only, I think, seven-point favorites against Purdue. They were, you know... Uh, small favorites in, in some of their other games this year that make you think they were underdogs to Cincinnati. They were underdogs to Wisconsin. I just don't think Vegas likes this team. I don't really like Virginia Tech that much, so I'm going to go with Notre Dame, um, but I feel very, very uh, cautious about doing so. All right, my lock of the week. I'm 4-1 and one right now in the lock of the week. I got Wisconsin minus 11 this week at Illinois. Brett Bielema is looking for revenge against Wisconsin. I guess not really revenge. He left them. So maybe Wisconsin's looking for revenge against him. They're just going to be doing the exact same things, except Wisconsin is way better at it right now. And Illinois is going to want to run the ball a ton. Well, good luck. Wisconsin has one of the best rushing defenses in the country uh, for all their other faults. That is not one of them. Uh, I think Wisconsin easily covers the 11 against Illinois. All right, on to the NFL. Adam was 5-0. and in the NFL last week. First up, Green Bay minus three at Cincinnati. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in the Bengals uh, a, a lick. I think they're um, a bad team with a pretty good quarterback. And isn't that just the story of a lot of teams in the NFL? <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, we're the Detroit Lions, and we're going to have Matthew Stafford and then Jared Goff, and the team's going to suck regardless. So uh, I'm going to go with Green Bay. Yeah, I'll go with the Packers as well. Uh, I was actually just now Googling because that line seemed a little odd. But this I, seems I'm, like another I'm, one. Yeah, I, so my immediate um, my immediate uh, instinct was to, to Google uh, the Packers injury report. Um, Jair Alexander is going to be out. There's no doubt about that. He, it, it might not be till. I'm sorry, no, but unless Aaron Rodgers yeah, is out. I, I, yeah, I'll go Packers. I am too, but this is another one I feel scared about for that reason. And the Bengals are three and one, but feels like they're going to regress. Maybe this is one of those games where like the Bengals lose, but they lose close, and they gain more respect out of just doing that, and they cover the spread somehow. But I am having a hard time wondering why it's three points. And you know what? That's what's weird too. I would think there would be a lot of betters who would be on board with the Packers in this situation to where the line would have moved. So I don't know. That's very scary. But I'll take Green Bay minus three as well. Chicago is at Las Vegas. The Raiders are giving up five and a half. I think Chicago's looked terrible. Like, I, I was actually really excited. Uh, well, not really excited. I was more excited than most people who live outside of Chicago about the Bears this season. And, wow, I was super wrong. <laughs> They're very bad. Um even their defense, which I was like, you know what? Maybe they just need a quarterback who can limit mistakes, and you know, maybe maybe Andy Dalton's that guy who can limit mistakes. Their defense is bad too. I don't I don't get it. So yeah, I don't love the Raiders, but I think I got to pick the Raiders over the Bears, mm. who I think are just a bad team. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't have said it any better myself. I think it, you know you've got to. Didn't they? Didn't uh, Nagy officially uh, name their starting quarterback? But I don't think. Fields will be the starter, I mean, I say, Fields for the rest is, of the season. I think Fields is better than, like, the 6 out of 20 that he put up, but I don't think he's, you know, I don't think he's, I don't, I don't even know if he's as good as Derek Carr. So, yeah, give me the Raiders. I'm going to actually go with the Bears in this spot. Um, I don't know. The John Gruden thing going on right now probably won't play any that's, role. That's a, yeah. And, that's uh, yeah. Uh, but Fields was a lot better against the Lions than he was um, – in the game against Cleveland. I mean, game against Cleveland, 
You have a 41 QB rating. He doubled that in the game against the Lions. And there were still some mistakes and things that he needed to clean up. But there was a lot more that you saw there in that game for Fields. And I think you'll continue to see that progression this week. Um, I don't think Las Vegas is five and a half points better. The Bears defense isn't what it was two, three years ago. But it's still like a solid defense. You know, it's a fringe top 10 defense in the NFL. And the biggest issue for Derek Carr is when he takes hits, when he gets under pressure. And I think the Bears can at least do that enough to make him uncomfortable. I think this will be a close game. I I like the Raiders to win, but I think five and a half might be a little too much. So I'm going to go with Chicago. Cleveland is at the Chargers. LA has given up two points. Yeah. um, You know, we were talking about this uh, off air. Baker is injured. Uh, Is he like out out? Is he getting a surgery or anything? I have no idea. I don't know. He tore his labrum. It sounds like he is going to play through it without getting surgery. And I know Odell Beckham said that, you know, I've been playing with that injury for 10 years, to which my response was, why have you been playing with this for 10 years and not gotten surgery one offseason? But nonetheless, I I think he's going to play, but we just don't know for sure. Yeah, I'm going to take the Browns. I think their running attack is too much, and I think Baker will be tolerable. Um, no, I, I, I'm actually probably higher now on the Chargers than I was last week. Um, see, oh yeah, give me Los Angeles. I'm really high on the Chargers too. Chargers so far this season, every game they've played, they have held their opponent to that opponent's season low in points. So every team they've played has had their worst offensive game against the Chargers defense. I really like the defense. I really like Justin Herbert. Um, Keenan Allen is a beast when he's on the field, when he's healthy. Austin Eckler is a stud. The offensive line is a lot better, adding Ronnie Stanley to the bunch. I think that the Chargers and the Bills, for me, right now are the teams to beat in the AFC. There's, and sorry, if, the, if the Chiefs win this week, then I would put the Chiefs back in that discussion. I'm just worried about the defense. But as of now, right now I view the Chargers and the Bills at that top tier. There was a play uh, at one point during the Monday Night Football game against the Raiders that Herbert uh, missed a, a decently open what he wasn't wide open but a decently open guy and my thought was i'm high on herbert but great quarterbacks don't miss that throw well then later in the game the i think it was the third touchdown to put the Chargers up 21 nothing was a wheel route from their halfback Uh, a lot of chiefs fans would it was similar to what the the chiefs ran a lot when they put send a wheel route for um, anthony sherman and he just hit that perfectly, man. And and so I think Herbert, not only do I think he's good, I think he gets better game to I think he gets better quarter to quarter, and I particularly think he gets better game to game. San Francisco's at Arizona. The Cardinals are giving up five points. Yeah, I think the Cardinals are great. I think San Francisco is fine. Like uh, That's obviously uh, still one of the strongest divisions in the NFL right now. Right? Is Arizona the best team in the NFL right now? No. Uh, I have some very controversial opinions. I still think the Rams are probably they just the beat best. the they beat. It down doesn't the matter Rams. to me. I still think the Rams are the okay. best team in the NFL. What do you say to that question? And Arizona, San Francisco minus five. No, I think Buffalo at the very least is better than than the Cardinals. Um, but give me the Cardinals in this game. Is Garoppolo playing? No, he is out. They actually announced I pronounce, today. I pronounce names weird, by the way, for those of you who are unfamiliar with me. Uh, Trey Lance, I guess, if we're going with yeah. the, the different <laughs> name pronunciation. Trey Lance is going to be starting this game. Troy Lance. <laughs> um, no, I give me the Cardinals. Okay, I'm going to go with San Francisco. I am a believer in Trey Lance. 
um, how much of that comes down to the one touchdown preseason throw against the Chiefs where they kind of blew the coverage? I don't know. That's a good question. But I actually like Trey Lance. I like this defense. I think they can hang in there. Arizona's coming off that huge win over the Rams. I think so often in a long NFL season, I'm not saying you don't try. Like, guys are still going to try, but there might be a different level of motivation of preparation through the week. You might have kind of a a down after such a high in the NFL season, and maybe that allows a good 49ers team to hang in there. I think a lot of people like to believe or get caught up in the belief that pros, because they're pros, aren't susceptible yeah. to the letdown they game. think they're machines. Exactly. They're not. But exactly, there are people. Uh, it was a huge game. So, yeah, I, I, I think you. I'm sticking with my pick, mm-hmm. but that's a really good point. Arizona is susceptible to a, to a letdown this weekend. If they don't, though, if they go out there and they win by, like, 21, we're going to have this conversation again about best team in the NFL. Buffalo at Kansas City. Chiefs, minus two and a half. Oh, man. I'm I'm so discouraged by how poor our defense has looked. Can and we all agree, like, pound the over, 56 and a half? That's not enough, right? Yeah, I think I talked about earlier. That's basically 28-27 mm-hmm. gets you to the under. I, I will say but this. I don't know. If Tyreek has a bad game, the Chiefs might not hit that kind of, like, you know, 25-point mark. The Bills have the number one defense in the NFL right now, but you also have to consider... Who have they played? Yeah, yeah, not great. Jaguars, Texans, Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger, who looks terrible. I mean, they haven't played any good offenses, so I don't know. Maybe that factors in. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, but are I you going Chiefs or Bills? I'm going to go Bills. I okay. feel bad saying that. I'll go Chiefs. Um, now, this, I I would feel much more comfortable if this game was a pick em. But I have a general rule that if I think a team's going to win, then I think they're. I should think that they're going to win by at least three. Um, so based on that, I'll I'll take the Chiefs because I do think, like I said, I, I think the Chiefs win. So the fact that the line is less than three, give me the Chiefs. I'm gonna go with the Bills. I don't understand why the Chiefs are favored here. Uh, defense has been so bad. I have a hard time seeing the Bills scoring anything less than 30 points. I could see him scoring 40 points. And I think the Chiefs offense will be able to put up high 20s, 30 points, but you can't continue to sustain that against great teams like you're playing in the Bills. And if you just have, there's no margin for error. Patrick Mahomes throws one interception, you have one fumble, you're done because the defense ain't helping you out enough. Uh, So I'm going to go with the uh, Buffalo Bills on that last one. All right, that is our game picks for the weekend. He's Adam Dravetta. He's Colsey DeButar. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Two hours down, one to go. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson and Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks, joins us now on a Friday. Bye week and an off week for you. I don't, I don't think you have any broadcast this week. So uh, what are you doing with your off weekend, Brian? Man, I've got a, a crazy, crazy day tomorrow. I, I'm going to start the day in Wichita for a book signing for Game Maker, my new children's book that we've talked a little bit about. It's about the uh, life story of Dr. James Naismith, starting with him as a creative, imaginative child who invented games on the farm up in Canada to get through the workday. And so been making several uh, you know, trips around, not just the state, but as you know, up in Massachusetts as well with that. And uh, this this next one's in Wichita tomorrow, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave at 7 a.m. to go to Wichita, and then I'm driving back uh, to Shawnee, Kansas, for a celebration of life with my college roommate who passed away of cancer and COVID within the last year, which is with a really heavy heart that we do that. 
And then uh, we'll end the night in Carbondale, Kansas, at the wedding of a, of a KU Athletics uh, longtime friend and a guy that had been a lot to KU baseball over the years. And so, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's going to be a range of emotions tomorrow, but we'll squeeze it all into an action-packed Saturday. And I guess it's a good thing we're not playing because there's no way I would have been able to pull it all off. Well, I think what what's the Jimmy V quote? You know, if you laugh, you cry, you, you smile all on the same day, that was a hell of a day, right? Yep, that's a great perspective. I love that, Derek. By the way, so proud of you, man. Uh, you never have an off day with the current schedule you're keeping with the high school games in Free State and then everything you're doing with Baker Athletics. You just uh, really uh, turned out a, a tremendous career at such a young age, and I'm so proud of everything you continue to put on your own plate. So I guess you probably never get an open Saturday at this point, but keep working hard, man. It's great to see your dreams come true. I appreciate it, and I uh, wouldn't be near where I am without you, so I, I really appreciate that. Uh, talking with Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks here. So you were a late night in the fog on Friday, and then Saturday the Iowa State game. Let's start with that late night in the fog. Uh, was What was your favorite moment from the events, whether it was the basketball game, whether it was talking with Bill Self, whether it was some of the skits that went on? Did you have something that was your favorite part of the night? Man, I don't know if I could pick just one. I, I, I guess it would be to see the young lady Libby step up and, and drain that three for $10,000 of Coach Self's money. But for me, it'd be more of like a top five moment because I, I love seeing Coach Self dressed up as Steven Tyler. That was hilarious. He was comparing his uh, Big 12 championship rings to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame rings, which was <laughs> pretty funny as his fellow assistant coaches looked at him like, what is Coach on? What is he tripping on? You know. And then there was the women's basketball skit that, you know, I'm obviously a lot older than you, Derek, but I grew up in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air era. And so their parody on the intro to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with a, a song rewritten to fit Kansas women's basketball, I thought was awesome. And then, obviously, you know, the, uh, the Rob Riggle stand-up comedy probably takes the cake. I, th- I thought it surpassed even on DMC. And certainly there's things he said we can't say on these airwaves because your listeners of RCSP are far too classy for me to repeat exactly what was said, and he was probably the only guy to get away with, with calling Mizzou the pile of, of what he said they were, and, and then some of the shots over the bow, he took at Kentucky, too. I thought, man, only Rob Riggle could pull this off, but he did so masterfully, and so that was probably my favorite non-basketball part of the night, but uh, just to see the two scrimmages, though, was a lot of fun, and I know we're talking with Coach Self, you know, Juan Harris really, really stood out. And it has continued to stand out, you know, throughout the off season and preseason. There's so much hype on Ochai and Remy Martin and David McCormick and Jalen Wilson and all that. But we tend to forget about this this guy who barely weighs one sixty five soaking wet and, and he's out there at the straw that stirs the drink and I thought he was really impressive. So he and uh seeing some of the freshmen like K J Adams, uh, hadn't had a chance to see him up close yet and he just and he comes in as physically built and just impressively put together physically uh, as any true freshman I've seen since T-Rob. And that's not to say he's going to go on to be a national player of the year candidate, but, I mean, he just he has that that Derek Johnson circa 2014 just chiseled <laughs> exterior, right? And uh, and, and so I, I'm blown away at, at, at uh, you know, how these kids are coming out of high school nowadays. You get them in our system with, with our strength coach and, and look out what he's going to turn into in the next 24 months or so. But – to see all of that come together and some of the transfers as well. We talk so much about Remy, but to see Joseph Yesifu and Jalen Coleman land, Cam Martin as well was a lot of fun. And now we get to sit back and watch how in the heck is he going to piece all this together. Uh, it's going to be entertaining over the next few weeks, that's for sure.
All right, so we got, uh, what, I don't know, three weeks or so, four weeks from the first game. Uh, if you had to guess right now, who ends up leading this team in, in scoring in points per game, who would you go with? You know, I think the, the easy answer is to go with the Pac-12 score of the year last year, who averaged 21 and a half in league play and 19 overall on the season at Remy Martin. But it's going to look different, right? I, I think our leading score on this year's team will be right around 14.9, you know. And there will be plenty of nights where, where they go north of that. Uh, there will be plenty of nights where David McCormick goes for 18 and 12. Uh, but but I, I think that, you know, Remy narrowly edging out David and Ochai and Jalen Wilson right behind them. And, and maybe Christian Brown finds a way into being a 10-point-per-game guy. But I think it's going to look a lot like that final season stat sheet of 2018 that, that had everybody, you know, the top four separated by a point or two. And the difference between one and two was decimal points. You know, like Brandon Rush was ultimately the leading scorer, but on any given night, it could be any one of five or six guys. And I think that's how it would go with this team. But just because Remy is, is uh, such a pure scorer and has done it so much before, I'll take him. But then again, I'm fully expecting David to average 15 a game. So, uh, if that's the case, my uh, 14.9 logic wouldn't, wouldn't have Remy in the lead. So we'll see. I just think it's going to be that balanced. And, uh, and and so that's an interesting question to ask because I think it'll change multiple times throughout the year. I'm talking with Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks here. So you went from late night in the fog, then leaving Saturday morning, going up to Ames for the KU game. Uh, I, I feel like this is really the first true test of Kansas football under Lance Leipold. Uh, finding a way to bounce back from the Iowa State game. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's fair because, well, you know, I, I guess bouncing back from the Baylor second half was, was a big true test, too, because I mean, they got outscored 31 zip in the second half and, and then had to head out on the road. And, and uh, maybe that's easier to do when you're taking on a team like Duke that you had circled as one of your best chances at a win. So maybe the get up off the mat factor, you know, isn't quite as tough to take on because you have that natural extra juice. But uh, certainly your point is a good one because, you know, this was a, a roundhouse to the jaw in a 28th and up in first quarter. And I, I think that as, as tough as it is to bounce back, you know, when you get beat 59-7, to you also can look at the fact that that might just be, Derek, the most talented team we play all year. And uh, with all due respect to Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma, and I know Iowa State was two and two, but like we talked about on last week's reports, that two and two was was not indicative of how much talent is on this team. I mean, they have 13 players on their offensive defense that are either All American or All Big 12, and you know, at some point, you know that 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 cream's going to rise to the top, even if they did lose to Iowa and lose to Baylor in games where they outgained them significantly in yardage. So uh, I, I think Iowa State goes on to be, you know, looking back on it. Uh, one of our toughest games, and because it was on the road, maybe the toughest game of the season. So hopefully we, we have some healthy perspective in that regard. Hopefully you realize that, hey, you were without Kenny Logan for the first half, and they picked on your young and experienced secondary without him in there, and that's part of it too. But there's several self-inflicted wounds that Kansas has to, uh, has to get over. I, I think the thing that's maybe more encouraging coming out of this one than the Baylor second half is just that we moved the ball so well. And we moved it well against the defense that wasn't giving up more than 300 yards a game and wasn't giving up more than a few yards a carry. And, and we saw Kansas, I don't want to say move it at will, because we didn't finish drives like we need to, but we were moving the chains you know, pretty impressively. And you can say, well, maybe 
Iowa State's foot was off the gas when they're up by five touchdowns, and I'd, I'd have a hard time disagreeing. But they did have their starters in there at least until the fourth quarter, and, and Kansas was moving the ball against the ones. And we didn't see that versus Baylor very often. It was a whole lot of three and outs. So to me, while it maybe is the biggest test in, in getting up off the map because it's the, the biggest margin of defeat, you got two weeks to do it, which means some guys are a little bit bumped and bruised. They're going to get healed up. You got a lot of time to do some self-evaluation, which is important when you have self-inflicted wounds and uh, some areas of improvement and, and things that they can look at internally. And then they'll probably on Sunday start getting set for Texas Tech if they haven't already put in some stuff uh, still this week. But I think this week was mostly about looking at them and, and, and seeing where they can uh, really identify some areas of improvement and, and then try to attack those. Because truth of the matter is, as tough as that game was on Saturday, you have more than half of your season remaining. You've got seven opportunities to go out there. And, and I, I think the belief in the fan base is certainly there. And the expectation of the fan base isn't that high given the fact that we have 69 freshmen and sophomores. And so even if you just won one of those remaining seven, and believe me, I'm not saying that's all that they can win. I'm not setting the bar too low here. I'm just telling you, I, I think our fan base would be appreciative and excited just to see incremental progress uh, in, in yardage, incremental progress in margin, you know, not just of defeat, but margin throughout the game. How close are you keeping it, entering the second half, entering the fourth quarter, that kind of thing. And then pluck off one or two more before it's all said and done, even if it's just one. Uh, that, to me, feels a lot like Mangino's first year. That, to me, feels an awful lot like progress, especially on the heels of a winless season last year. So there's so much there still for the taking for this team. That's exciting. And, and I think we've got the perfect leadership to handle this the right way on the heels of a stinging defeat to where you don't get down and demoralized because you lost by 50-plus but you realize you know, where you're at in the, in the state of progress of all this and, and what needs to come next to put one foot in front of the other and, and keep building this thing. Yeah, and I think it's important the next game to at least come out there and, and be competitive and have a good strong showing after losing by so much to Iowa State in that game. Uh, I, I do think, though, it's funny because you scored just seven points and you, know, you don't think of the offense having a great game, but... Uh, you had over 150 yards rushing. Devin Neal had a good rushing game. And uh, considering the improvement I think we've seen really from the offensive line and getting into the, the wide zone scheme and knowing that that's an Iowa State defense that allowed under two yards per carry to Iowa, who's a top five team that leans on their rushing game, I actually came away from the game, at least in that regard, thinking there was yeah. a lot of progress being had from the rushing game. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, and obviously we saw some Jason Bean mistakes that were atypical that uh, you'd love to have back and a couple of plays where they don't turn it over here in the red zone or have a turnover on downs in the uh, middle portion of the field or have a kick blocked. You, know, you, you could have easily accounted for 10 to 14 to 17 more points in this game. And, uh, and then we're looking on it vastly differently, right? So I, I think that uh, there was a lot of things tangibly, offensively, that you could hang your hat on that, quite frankly, weren't there in the second half versus Baylor. So that, to me, shows there's still progress, even though that final margin you know, might, might not be where you'd want it. And I know there's a lot of casual fans that only check the notification on their phone or the newspaper the next day, and they don't look at how the game was actually played out. But if you look at the game inside the game, as you just laid out, there's definite signs of market improvement, and, and those are the types of building blocks you got to hang on to when you're still a little bit away ways away from 
piling up a win of, of that fashion in a venue like that. So what do you think now that they're on the bye week, do you think becomes the biggest positive that they can take away from this bye week headed into the rest of the season? You know, I, I think hopefully it's it's a chance to, uh, to get a couple of guys back uh, in the trenches. You know, we'll see what that looks like come next week. I think hopefully it's a chance to continue the offensive line's progress that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, take a step forward. Hopefully for some of the young guys in the defense where, you know, you've just got so much youth in the middle and back of the defense that, that they're getting necessary reps, uh, you know, that, that come sometimes midseason in a bye week where, you know, your, your best lessons learned obviously are on Saturdays and games, but sometimes you can make big steps forward as a young developing freshman corner or freshman safety uh, when, when you're not having to learn the lessons the hard way by getting toasted by some of these you know, all Big 12 receivers that are soon to be playing on Sunday. Sometimes just having, you know, eight practices before your next game is going to give you a chance to get a whole lot better without having to have something on film of you getting beat and getting exposed because you're a little bit green and a little bit raw. So I would hope that the guys like that come out of the bye week with more confidence. And keep in mind, I mean, this, this coaching staff and the positional coaches that are working with some of these guys have only been working with them since August 1. And so because there was no spring ball, you know, a bye week of, of just extra practices focusing on themselves is huge. It's, it's kind of like an extra week of spring. And, uh, you know, when you have a couple of areas on this team, like linebacker and, and, you know, some of the secondary players that I think have big upside, they're just really young, you, you can't speak to how significant that extra practice time of just focusing on individual player development, technique, and fundamentals could help them in work with their new coaches. So those are. Those are some of the things. I know that seems like I'm paint with a broad brush, but when you're this raw and when the slate is that blank as, as such a young football team that's had so limited number of weeks with their current staff, you'd be surprised uh, you know, how influential and impactful you know, the, the extra practice time midseason could be for such a young group that in many cases has guys starting for just the fifth or sixth time in their career. And so I, I think for guys like that, that the bye week can be even more instrumental than it would be for the season veterans. He's Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks. No broadcast this week, but he'll still have a busy weekend. You can hear him on the call next week of KU and Texas Tech. Brian, thank you so much for the time as always, man, and uh, have a good weekend. Always a pleasure, my friend. You have a great one, too, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, that was Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks, joining us here on a Friday on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Now it's time for another top 10 list. Earlier this week on Wednesday, did a top 10 list of top 10 best versions of a pumpkin. But there's some bad versions of pumpkins out there as well which is why we are going to do the top 10 worst versions of a pumpkin. Let's get it rolling. Number 10. 10th worst version of a pumpkin, David S. Pumpkins. That was the name of a Saturday Night Live character on a skit they did a couple times. It wasn't very funny. Now, the reason it's not higher, Tom Hanks played David S. Pumpkins. And so I don't want to dock them too much. Tom Hanks is a phenomenal actor, one of the best actors of all time. He didn't even want the role, though. He said that somebody else should play this role, 
that's probably a bad sign. If one of the best actors ever is like, eh, I don't know about this. So David S. Pumpkins in at number 10. Number nine. Ninth worst version of a pumpkin, pumpkin seeds. You know, pumpkin seeds are fine. Um, you, you know, clean out the pumpkin, you get the pumpkin seeds, and then you bake them up or roast them or whatever. They're fine. But does anybody ever eat pumpkin seeds outside of that specific scenario? And it's not just a situation of, oh, this is really good. Let me eat it now because, you know, this is the time of year that we're going to have it. Like maybe you're really into eggnog, but you don't eat it at other times of year because it's festive. But if somebody was like, hey, will you drink this eggnog for me in March? And you're like, ah, you know, I'm not really in the mood, but like I, I like eggnog. Does anybody ever do that with pumpkin seeds? I feel like with pumpkin seeds, it's just like, yeah, these are fine. It's like. Do you really want to eat pumpkin seeds? They're boring. They're bland. They're not that good. Number eight. Eighth worst version of a pumpkin. Pumpkin-shaped candy corn. So candy corn is already a very controversial candy to begin with. Then there are the pumpkin-shaped ones. Instead of the little carrot-looking ones, they look like big pumpkins, and they are even worse than the regular candy corn. I I don't know. I, I think candy corn, I'm not a big fan of it personally, but I don't think it's like that bad. The pumpkin-shaped ones, I think, are even worse, and those are disgusting. It is overwhelming sugar flavor. Number seven. Seventh worst version of a pumpkin, smashed pumpkins. Smashing pumpkins was on the 10 best because it's a fun activity. It's kind of juvenile. Try not to get caught. Don't do it to, you know, little kids' pumpkins, but maybe after Halloween. I'm not going to condone this. Never mind. I'll stop there. But smashed pumpkins themselves, not a good version of a pumpkin. At that point, it's already been smashed. And, you know, it's hard to clean up. It, it doesn't look cool. It looks gross. So smash pumpkin, seventh worst version of a pumpkin. Number six. Sixth worst version of a pumpkin. Eating too much pumpkin and turning orange. Apparently, if you eat tons of carrots or pumpkin, your skin can turn orange because of the beta carotene which is a pigment that is present in high amounts. And if you eat too much, the excess beta carotene enters the bloodstream and you can turn orange. That's never happened to me. I hope it's never happened to you, but that would be a pretty pretty bad thing to happen. Although I guess if you want to be like super tan, orangish looking, then maybe there's your avenue without uh, actually having to go to the tanning booth or just sitting outside all day. Number five. Into the top five worst versions of a pumpkin. Pumpkin spiced everything. It was on the top 10 list of you know, pumpkin spice drinks we had and pumpkin spice baked goods. There are a lot of pumpkin spice things that are very good. Sometimes that crosses the line, and that's where the issue is. Uh, people don't know when to stop, right? You know, we don't need something good on everything, right? Uh, sometimes something is good because we have a moderate amount of it. Everything is good in moderation. There are pumpkin spice Pringles, toothpaste, beard oil, deodorant, dog shampoo. It goes on and on and on. Yesterday, I saw a pumpkin spiced bratwurst that had candy corn in it. Sometimes it's just too much. So pumpkin spiced everything in at number five, the worst version of a pumpkin. Number four. And again, it can be good, just in moderation. Number four, pumpkin soup. I love soup. This is an abomination to soup. Get out of here. Pumpkin soup? Who wants soup that tastes like a pumpkin? Disgusting. Number three. Third worst pumpkin on the list, the book Feathertop. What a sad tale. A, a witch builds a pumpkin-headed scarecrow to protect her garden, and in a twist, 
decides it would be fun to bring him to life. And he gives him a human appearance, sends him off to woo the daughter of a judge. The scarecrow named Feathertop does so. Soon he and the daughter fall in love. And then they both see his true reflection in a mirror that he is actually a pumpkin-headed scarecrow. The girl faints. Feathertop plunges headlong into a depressive existential crisis and then offs himself. What an awful book. That's terrible. Who would want to read that? Feathertop in at number three, worst version of a pumpkin. Number two. Second worst version of a pumpkin, eating raw pumpkin. Apparently you can do this. I have never done it. Seems like something you'd have to do if you lost a bet. You know, have you ever eaten like a raw tomato or something? That's already gross as is. Imagine eating a raw pumpkin. You know, texture's not going to be great. It's going to taste horrible. It's like eating a, a hard version of cardboard. Disgusting. Eating raw pumpkin. Apparently you can do it though. Number one. Actually has a lot of health benefits. All right. The worst version of a pumpkin though is cleaning out the inside of a pumpkin. I know this is more of an action. I don't care. This is my list. Do with it what you want. Um, cleaning out the inside of a pumpkin sucks. You know, making a jack-o'-lantern and having the end result is really cool. And that was on the top five for best versions of a pumpkin. But the process itself of having to clean it out is such a huge pain in the behind. I mean, you get it in your fingernails and you have to get all of it out. And it's such a process. And to do it the right way and sometimes you get a pumpkin that it's even harder to get everything out it is such a painstaking process and you know it can be fun with the end result but the actual process of cleaning out the pumpkin is the worst part of the pumpkin all right that's rock chalk sports stock that is your top 10 worst list of pumpkins if you missed the best list check out the best of rcst podcast from earlier this week on wednesday i'm Derek johnson this is rock chalk sports talk on fm 1017 1320 KLWN, depend on it.